0: Hey everyone, this is Ben Norton, and this is Rules Based Disorder here on Colin. There was a little confusion about the time of the stream, so I'm, I'm still waiting on people to join. I accidentally had put the wrong date, but I'll be talking today for about 40 minutes to an hour, depending on questions, so please feel free to go ahead and join the queue and ask questions, so this is open for a chat as always. And we can talk about what's in the, the headlines this week. You, people probably saw that one of the big stories of today is that the U.S. Federal Reserve has raised interest rates by 0.75%, which might not sound like a lot, but that is a pretty significant development. It's the highest rate increase since 1994. And we've seen basically since 1994... The Federal Reserve has had this policy of just giving free money to rich capitalists, to wealthy elites, to large corporations. Economist Michael Hudson has talked about how this has helped to create the illusion of economic growth, even though the vast majority of that growth has been in the FIRE sector, F-I-R-E, which is finance, insurance, real estate. And it's not productive economics. It's all financial speculation and a lot of it is just corporations buying back their own stock. And one of the ways that that has been facilitated, this bubble of financial speculation that is presented as economic growth is by having close to zero interest rates and not only that, but quantitative easing by their Federal Reserve. Even we saw at the beginning of the pandemic that the Federal Reserve was actually going even further and was bailing out all of these companies giving loans, which is the Fed is absolutely not supposed to do. So this is a decision that the Biden administration claims is going to combat inflation, and inflation is at the worst rate since 1994. But a lot of that inflation, as economist Michael Hudson has pointed out, is not because necessarily of the quantitative easing policies that... The Federal Reserve has, has followed because those aren't new, obviously. Those policies go back to really the 2008 financial crash and we haven't seen the same rates of inflation. One of the points that he has emphasized is how inflation is so directly linked to one, the sanctions that have been imposed around the world, but especially on Russia. And Europe is seeing this very clearly now where Europe, people in Europe are having to pay four, five, even ten times as much for energy as they did before the sanctions on Russia. And the U.S. is, of course, affected by that because the U.S. also has a complete boycott of Russian energy. And ironically, Russia had been a significant exporter of oil to the United States. So one of the main reasons for the inflation is because of the sanctions on Russia and sanctions on other countries. Two. Another significant factor are these monopolies that dominate industries, especially in the United States, but also in Western Europe, that can use crises like the pandemic, like the war in Ukraine, to arbitrarily gouge prices. It's not because there's a lack of goods, it's because there's a moment of political crisis and they can take advantage of it and just keep gouging up prices. And because these are tightly controlled industries, that are monopolized by a few corporations, it's very easy for them to do that. I mean, Amazon is a really good example of that. And that's also just the, the entire economic model that we've seen develop in the past several decades of these corporations where they enter a market, they enter an industry, and they work at, they operate at very low cost, barely making any profit. This is how Amazon worked for many years. And then they destroy all competition in that industry and then, because there's no competition, they just push up prices as far as they want. Amazon is a great example of that. Amazon is now responsible in the United States for over th- over three fourths, over seventy five percent of internet purchases. So it's destroyed a huge industry, destroyed most of its competition, and can now just gouge up prices as far as it wants because it basically has a monopoly. And there are so many other examples of that. I mean. I think there also needs to be more discussion of the fact that the utility companies in the US are all privatized and pretty much all of the US. It's the worst of both worlds, you know, because you constantly hear these free market capitalists talk about how in, you know, competition is important to combat monopolies. That's not necessarily wrong. But what's funny is they use that, that argument to criticize state owned monopolies when there's state owned companies. But the U.S. has the worst of both worlds and part increasingly in Western Europe. It has the worst of both worlds. A monopoly and it's a privatized monopoly. (laughs) If you're going to have a monopoly, a monopoly, at least make it state owned. So the energy can be at least have some democratic accountability and run by the government. But no, in the U.S. in many places, people have a choice between one or two utilities companies that are private, that are for profit companies. And of course, they have a vested interest in pushing up rates as far as they want as well and can use all of these excuses. So, you know, I wrote an article at multipolarisa.com about these comments that were made by Jerome Powell, who is the head of the Fed, the U.S. Federal Reserve. And he gave this speech to investors and the transcript of it was published at the Wall Street Journal. And he talked about how, you know, with the, the large inflation crisis that the U.S. is dealing with, he said that one of the main ways to get around that inflation is dropping wages for workers. <laughs> he, he didn't say, you know, regulating these monopoly corporations that set arbitrary prices in price gouge and they're making record profits. Not a single mention of that. He said that wages are too high and because of COVID, because... People decided it wasn't worth risking their health and potentially their lives for these crappy jobs where they make minimum wage. He said because of that and because for the first time in many decades, people actually had some small amounts of support from the government. He, he complained that the labor market had too many job openings and they weren't being filled because they're crappy, low-paying jobs with no benefits. So he said that we need to reinforce more discipline on the labor market and basically drop wages and make people more desperate so they have to work in these crappy jobs. And that was his solution to dealing with inflation, which again, as I just spelled out, isn't because of high wages, unlike what he said. It's because of geopolitics and because of the way that the economy is set up. So, you know, There's going to be a lot of coverage in the next few weeks about the Fed decision to raise interest by 0.75%. And there's already a lot of articles in the press saying, get prepared for an economic recession. There's a lot of discussion. Get prepared for a recession. And of course, this is just portrayed as some inevitable law of nature. You know, it's the free market at work. There's nothing we can do about it. There's a lot that the, that the government could do about it, but of course the Federal Reserve is not a representative of, you know, working people. It's a representative for the large banks that own it, the private banks that own it. And they're representatives of just this neoliberal austerity policy. And the solution to everything is always tighten your belt, tighten your belt, tighten your belt. So that's the, really the big story of today. And there's a lot to talk. There's a lot to reflect on there, but I'm going to go ahead. There's other things I want to talk about in the stream today. You know, the war in Ukraine, the Biden administration has just announced another billion dollars in military aid, in addition to the around 50 billion that have already been given. And of course, there are many reports that that Ukrainian officials are just skimming huge parts of that off and putting it in their bank accounts and hiding it offshore. Zelensky himself, who was named in the Pandora Papers, I mean, this guy, he's well known for being a hundred millionaire, for being extremely wealthy, for having offshore bank accounts. So yet again, we see the U.S. government just taking billions of dollars in contracts for private for-profit corporations in the military industrial complex, and then the rest of that money just going into the pockets of corrupt Ukrainian oligarchs. So more of the same. And of course... We've seen the media finally acknowledge that Ukraine is not winning the war, obviously. And Russia is on the verge of controlling all of Donetsk and Lugansk. So anyway, I, uh, there's a lot to talk about. There's other things happening. Uh, Iran and Venezuela have signed a 20-year cooperation plan, which is completely historic. And later this week, I'm going to be doing an interview with a journalist in Venezuela to talk about this very important agreement that was made when President Maduro was in Tehran and Maduro also visited Algeria. And there are a lot of very important things happening. But with all that said, I'm going to go ahead and start answering or answering questions and having a discussion. So anyone who's listening, please feel free to join the queue and uh, I'll take your questions. And I'm going to start with. Pedro Vicente. Go ahead, Pedro.
1: Uh, hi, Ben. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, so just wanted to say a quick, uh, quick note about inflation. Uh, I'm no economist, uh, but uh, actually I'm a software engineer. Uh, but I try as much as, as I can to learn everything about economy and markets because I just think it's a great thing to, to actually understand and learn So uh, I think most economists uh, blame inflation for the United States Federal Reserve so-called printing money. Uh, So just wanted to say that uh, not exactly what we hear if you turn CNN, they they always blame somebody else, they blame the Russians, they blame this and that. So yeah, that's all I wanted to say. Uh, I I would uh, I would love to to hear, probably not from you, from somebody else, what actually are exactly the causes of inflation. I think it's a matter of supply and demand, but uh, I really this is something that I'm, I really don't totally understand. But I would like to understand. So, if you would like to add something to that, feel free. Uh, have a good day. Bye now.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, just as you said uh, always to clarify i'm not an economic, i'm not an economics expert or an economist but from i agree that it's very important to study this and to read as much and educate ourselves as possible and from from the research that i've been doing especially from michael hudson i think he's indispensable i think you're right that a huge part of it is exactly this this year long process of quantitative easing but especially since covid at the beginning of the covid pandemic the U.S. Federal Reserve went on this massive spree of bailing out huge parts of just Wall Street and bondholders and spending literally trillions of dollars, basically just printing trillions of dollars to bail out bondholders. And, you know, there, there are people who try to blame this strictly on COVID, but there were a lot of articles in the financial press, press before COVID hit in the spring of 2020 that were warning of, a, of a, an impending financial crash. This was the last year of Donald Trump administration, and there were a lot of fears of an impending recession. And I think, you know, I mentioned the, the corporate monopolies, especially if you look at in the US, the industries where there is a lot of inflation, but of course, inflation is going on around the world. You know, the inflation is especially in food and a lot of food production is dominated by these corporate monopolies and not just in the U.S., but around the world. And of course, energy and energy is very heavily monopolized by these corporations. And then, of course, there's the the sanctions on Russia, which is a huge producer of not only oil, but also natural gas and coal. So. Those are other factors, but yeah, I mean, definitely the this policy of just basically printing money to give it to rich corporate elites and big corporations. Uh, I this is this is something that I learned to check out by the uh, the political economist Radhika Desai, who is part of this really excellent group. It's called the Geopolitical Economy Research Group. For people who want to to learn more about inflation and and their analysis they just organized a really good seminar a like a video workshop with several speakers several political economists who are much more qualified than i am talking about inflation and radhika desai mentioned in that that video her analysis she mentioned that everyone should go look up the u.s federal reserve balance sheet And if you see the total assets of the U.S. Federal Reserve, you can see that it has skyrocketed since the end of 2019 and the beginning of 2020. So I want to stress again that COVID really hit the U.S. around March, February, March 2020. But if you look at the Fed, the balance sheet, a lot of this, these policies actually began before COVID hit. And if you go back to September, 2007, I mean, this is all you have to do is just Google this, or just look up in a search engine, U S federal reserve balance sheet. And it shows the total assets that it has in millions. And back in 2008, the total assets were one second. The total assets were $880 billion. And then 2009, September 2009, a year later, $2.1 trillion. So that was, of course, during the financial crash. And in that sense, I mean, you know, it kind of it makes sense economically when you're dealing with a massive economic crash. But since then, this is the period in which the Fed dropped interest rates basically to zero, and then had this policy of quantitative easing, just giving basically free money to bondholders, large corporations, and banks, allowing all these corporations just to, just to buy back their own stock, because there's basically there's no cost to buying back their own stock, because interest rates are basically zero, and they get all this free money. So they just use that to buy back their own stock, which raises the price of their stock. It's all this big financial bubble. Nothing's being produced. And then if you go and fast forward to 2015, suddenly the Fed has $4.5 trillion in assets. And then if you go to June, here it is, June and July 2019, it had slightly under 4 trillion and then in the next year it skyrocketed to 7 trillion and then now it's at 9 trillion i mean it's incredible again people should just look up this graph we're talking about just massive printing of money and there's another point to make here because sometimes you'll hear libertarians make this point and it's again it's not wrong about the fed printing all this money but they act as though the Fed is printing all this money to fund social programs. They say the Biden administration is spending all this money on these social pr- programs. What are they talking about? There's no social programs. In fact, the Biden administration has been cutting social programs, continuing these policies of austerity. And the Biden administration couldn't even pass its own legislation, like the build back better bill that it, you know, claimed it was going to do because of you know, these two votes in the Demo- in the Democratic senators, Kirsten Cinema in Arizona, I mean, they and and um in West Virginia as well. I mean, it's incredible because there's this idea that like the Biden administration is a socialist or a Keynesian or something. No. The reason the Federal Reserve is printing all this money is to bail out all of these bondholders that were on the verge of of facing, you know, collapse in that, the beginning of the pandemic, which, you know, when the pandemic hit, it just, there were all of these companies that were just sitting on a house of cards that were actually doing nothing productive. It's just all a big bubble of financial speculation and the, the pandemic, which grinded the economy to a halt, threatened to burst that bubble. So instead of allowing that bubble to burst, the Fed, starting with Trump and continuing with Biden, because the head of the Fed, Jerome Powell, was appointed by Donald Trump and he's he was just reappointed for another term by Biden. This is completely bipartisan. That policy has continued. And it's all about preventing the 0.01 percent capitalist elites, oligarchs who own a huge percentage of the economy from losing any of their investments. I mean, it really is incredible. So, yeah, um, I'm going to go now to North Squatch. Go ahead.
2: Hey, man. Uh, I'm interested to know um, how much uh, quantitative – is it called quantitative easing when they just print money?
0: Is that the term for it? Well, no, technically, no, they're a little different. I mean, quantitative easing is a kind of new – uh, strategy that the that the Federal Reserve has been doing. They, basically, the U.S. version of the central bank. But I mean, they've also they d- can just. That's one of the ways that they do it. But they also just do it on. I mean, and we say printing money, but they also just do it on the computer. Like it's all zeros in the computer. It's not even physical money. Most, a lot of this, these assets. I mean, I was just saying the Federal Reserve now on, on the official books has nine trillion in assets, but most of that is not physical.
2: Yeah, uh anyways, I, I was just one I would be interested to know how much of that idea is actually the cause of inflation. Um I would use an example like South Korea where if you compare South Korea's money printing to the rest of the major nations like UK, Canada and USA. Um South Korea barely increased its money printing at all and um its inflation is almost just as high as the rest of the country. So it's like five, almost 6%. And uh, I'm, I'm wondering just how much it is. Uh, it's kind of a half-brained theory here of um, just the momentum or the domino effect of energy increasing their prices, increasing their profit margins. Because if you look at the cost of oil per barrel right now, it's around like 120 hovering around there, which is the same cost. It was between 2011 and 2014, like it's the same, same cost um, per barrel, but gas prices were nowhere near what they cost now. Exactly. Um, So I'm just wondering, like you increase the cost of fuel and it has so many knock-on effects everywhere. Um, that it just seems to me that like how much of this inflation is pure, like profit gouging from the, the foundations of our energy. And it's just, it's not only being knocked onto all of the other parts of our economy, but also we we've seen so many stories of, um, how many companies that are just taking advantage of the, the narrative of inflation. And it's just kind of this, like, snowball effect, this self-fulfilling prophecy of, like, okay, well, energy companies are going to gouge us, and therefore everything goes up. And then all the other companies, they have cover, and so they'll raise their prices even more. And it's just this, this terrible cycle. Um, I'm, sure, I'm sure money printing has a huge part of it, but it seems like how much of this is just um, contrived, you know?
0: Yeah, that's, I mean, I think that's exactly right. I mean, so basically since the 2008 crash, the response of the Fed has been basically to say, we're just going to buy securities, including mortgage backed securities and basically just create the illusion of economic activity and economic growth because the Fed is the one buying these securities, which increases the amount of money and gives the illusion that the economy is growing. And that's exactly, especially since right before. Again, it should should also be stressed that this is before COVID hit, because again, there's there are people who were saying that, well, you know, these some of these policies are understandable because it was during the COVID lockdown and this economic crash. But a lot of this started in late 2019, and and I think you're absolutely right to say that now. I mean, this a huge part of this is just price gouging, because the thing is, like I was saying earlier. This policy, quantitative easing for the, the U.S. Fed is not a new policy. It's been doing this a lot since 2008, where the Fed was just buying a bunch of securities and the Fed was also buying treasuries, treasury bonds. And, and like we're talking like a trillion dollars a year of just buying treasuries and, and securities. So this policy isn't necessarily new. But I want to get up. There's this really good article on Wall Street on Parade, which is one of the best like alternative uh, analysis websites. And they did a piece on the Fed trillion dollar bailout that got so little attention in the mainstream press. It's 2019 to 2021 bailout of Wall Street. Um here it is. This is from September 2009. Again, this is from Wall Street on Parade. Really good website by these analysts, Pam Martins and Russ Martins. From September 2019. So again, this was months before COVID hit. I think the first case was announced in China in December 2019 or January 2020, if I remember correctly. And then in the U.S., They started like lockdowns and policies in in March, February and March. So in September 2019, before COVID, until through until July 2020, the trading units of the Wall Street banks took a cumulative total of $11.23 trillion in emergency repo loans from the Federal Reserve. The loans were conducted by one of the 12 regional Fed banks, the, regional, the, the Federal Reserve of New York, which is owned by JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Citigroup, Morgan Stanley, and other big banks. So, I mean, this has gotten so little attention in mainstream corporate media, but the Fed gave repo loans valued at $11 trillion to the largest banks to bail them out. Before COVID hit, I mean, this was also throughout COVID, but it started before COVID. And and then, of course, you know, to more directly answer your question about, about energy, I think that's one of the main reasons for this inflation that we're seeing now, because there was inflation going on before the war in Ukraine escalated with the Russian invasion on February 24th. But since then, that inflation has continued even further. And... You know, there's this there's this attempt by the Biden administration and the EU to to call it like the Putin tax, to blame it on Russia, even though that ignores the fact that inflation was a serious problem before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But since then, if you look even further, the energy prices have skyrocketed. Another reason for this is that even before Russia invaded Ukraine, the European Union was pressuring its members to cancel their long-term contracts or not renew their long-term energy contracts with Russia. And what they were doing is they were instead just simply buying energy on the spot market, which is an insane policy. Most countries, if they are not energy independent and they have to import energy they usually sign long-term contracts with countries that will provide them energy at a set rate over, you know, five, 10 years. And that set rate is usually below the market value. But what the EU was doing was pressuring countries in Europe before Russia invaded Ukraine. This was in like late 2019 to buy, excuse me. This was in um, not 20, late 2019. This is late 2021. This is last winter that, that, The European Central Bank and the European Commission were pressuring countries to end their long-term contracts with Russia. And instead, many of these countries were buying energy on the repo market at prices that were like five to ten times more, which meant that energy prices increased drastically and bills increased drastically. And as you said, one of the most, one of the most significant factors in the increase of inflation is the increase of energy costs because People, you need energy to transport goods. You need energy to run restaurants and run companies and in fa- factories. So, you know, the attempt to blame this all on Russia is a ridiculous, uh, ridiculous strategy, cynical strategy being used by Western governments. But this inflation problem predated the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and then the sanctions on Russia have made it even worse. I mean, it's it's really and an incredible failure by the US financial elites and the European Union's financial elites and it has had a massive spill out spill off affecting the entire world because these energy markets affect every country on earth and now the european countries that are boycotting russian energy thought that they could could like put bring russia to its knees and the irony is that the latest estimates show that Russia is making record profits now because of its energy exports because because of the policies of these Western countries energy prices have skyrocketed and Russia keeps selling its energy and because they thought that Russia could only had them as customers but instead Russia has been selling that energy to East Asia and South Asia. So it, it really is a, an incredible disaster and it's so disgusting and so cynical to see the Fed share in the US, Jerome Powell, blame high wages, which by the way, those high wages have been destroyed by inflation. It is technically true that wages in the US have risen in recent years to the highest levels in several decades, but this inflation has destroyed those high wages. And the inflation was not caused by higher wages, the inflation was caused by these political policies. (laughs) Um, so any, I, Pedro, I don't know if you had anything else. I'll make you a, a caller again and then I'll invite anyone else who wants to join the queue to go ahead and to join in. Uh,
1: yes, I just wanted to say that I totally agree with you. That is actually totally understandable. So that, that's all. Oh, there was another thing. Uh, I just happened to, to notice uh since you mentioned Russia there was a study done by uh, a professor at the University of Calgary in Canada called Boucher that did some kind of uh, twitter search uh, and it uh, it prepared a list of uh, people that are kind of sympathetic to the Russian government and uh, you are on that list so uh, I' I'll, I'll put uh, I'll tweet it out on, on uh, in response to your uh, tweet or something like that so that you can see it, it comp- yeah, I, this. you compile you this you't know that you say not okay
0: yeah okay it's it's an insane study now this this study by these Canadian researchers they try to link a bunch of random people on Twitter and random journalists to Russia but there's actually sorry I'm I'm just there's some background noise, but there's actually no evidence whatsoever linking us to Russia. It is really incredible. It's completely defamatory. And I mean, they just have a bunch of people they claim are like Russia influenced without any evidence of being Russia influenced. And then they have like a bunch of far right people in Canadian politics like Maxime Bernier. And then they, they like try to imply that they're somehow linked, but they don't provide any evidence of them being linked. And this, this report is like five pages long. This is incredible. It's not scientific in any way. It's complete nonsense. And then they just have like this, this random rating and they don't show you how, like, like the y-axis doesn't show how the rating is actually measured, how this metric was, was calculated. And then they have like one of these ridiculous charts that have become popular in, like, these pseudoscientific studies that, like, show a bunch of random people on Twitter in, like, these intersecting circles and, like, show, like, how far or how close you are connected, but they don't explain in any way how these people are connected. I mean, it truly is just ridiculous McCarthyite nonsense. And the fact that they can get away with this shows that we're just in this, like, neo-McCarthyite era where anyone who criticizes NATO and Western foreign policy is called Russia-influenced. In fact, in that study, they look at tweets and they say tweets that discredit and criticize NATO are evidence of being Russia-influenced. Think about how insane that is. They're saying that you are somehow influenced by or linked to Russia if you criticize NATO. That is not scientific. This is I mean, this is how low standards are in academia among these so-called scientists. It is really laughable. And yeah, I just saw that I was included in there. Richard Medhurst was included in there. Aaron Mate. I mean it's it's completely laughable. And by the way, in the study, they list a bunch of Twitter accounts and then they, they mention which Twitter accounts were suspended. So it's very clear that their tactic is trying to pressure Twitter to suspend those accounts by claiming that they are so-called Russia-influenced, even though they provided no evidence of any actual ties to Russia. I have never been to Russia. I have no ties to Russia. I have never worked for a Russian organization or a Russian-backed organization. I, yeah, I've, I've appeared on RT, but I've also regularly appear on Chinese media and Telesur, and Mexican media, and Bolivian media, and Nicaraguan media, and Turkish media. I mean, and Al Jazeera, which is cuttery media. Like, the it's so absurd. But their strategy is very clear. It's to try to pressure these big cor- tech corporations to censor anyone who criticizes NATO on their platform by saying that if you criticize NATO and Western foreign policy, you're guilty of spreading Russian disinformation. And there was another study that was very similar to this that was published by this neoconservative think tank that, that's called the ISD. And it's funded by dozens of Western government institutions. I mean, it's, it's a neoconservative cutout of Western governments. And they published this, this article, they, they published a report, and then Vice published an article about it. And the report is basically saying, you know, there's all these people on Twitter who are spreading so-called Russian disinformation and they should be suspended. And then they also said they're going after Telegram. And they said that now these these people who have been suspended on Twitter, now they're building up followers on Telegram and they need to be they, they need to be suspended. And they were, they were talking like Scott Ritter and others. Th- this is the article in Vice Vice.com, you know, this ridiculous, hipster, imperialist rag that does documentaries with U.S. government officials like Condoleezza Rice and cooperates, collaborates with the Atlantic Council, which is a NATO cutout. Vice published an article titled Pro-Kremlin Influencers Are Using the Buffalo Shooting to Undermine Ukraine Because... You know, they have no evidence of so-called pro being pro-Kremlin. They just call anyone who criticizes Western foreign policy pro-Kremlin. And then this article points out that people, including myself, that there are people who pointed out that this fascist white supremacist terrorist in Buffalo, New York, who did a mass shooting and killed a bunch of people, he published this white supremacist manifesto, and in it he used... The the Black Sun, which is known in German as the Sonnenrad, which Sonnenrand, which is a neo-Nazi symbol. It was a symbol originally used by the Nazis. It's like this pagan German symbol that has been appropriated by fascists, white supremacists. And the Buffalo Nazi shooter, he used this symbol repeatedly, which is the same symbol used by the Azov Regiment, which is the neo-Nazi battalion in Ukraine that is embedded in the National Guard and has received training and weapons from NATO and other Western governments. So we pointed that out on on Twitter or in articles, and this bogus fake report published by the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, ISD, it claimed that we are pro-Kremlin influencers, and who funds this bogus neoconservative think tank. If you go to their website, their funders are Australia, Denmark, the Council of Europe, the European Commission, the Netherlands, Finland, Germany, uh, the Mayor's Office of London, New Zealand, Norway, Canada, Sweden, Switzerland, the U.K. Foreign Office, the U.K. Home Office, the U.S. State Department, and the U.S. Department for Homeland Security, along with Facebook and Google, Microsoft, and YouTube. (laughs) So these studies are funded by Western governments and then laundered through neoconservative think tanks and regurgitated by media outlets like Vice. And then their clear implication is that anyone on Twitter... And any alternative media outlet that criticizes imperialism and NATO is spreading Russian disinformation and therefore should be suspended. That It's very clear what the operation is. It's ridiculous. So I'm going to go to Aaron now. Aaron Cohen, a regular caller. Go ahead. Hey, Ben, how you doing? Good, good. How are you doing?
3: Yeah, uh, I'm doing great. So uh, I'm curious because um, this is obviously—I mean, I'm not an Alex Jones guy or anything, but at all. But um, you know, the phrase "info wars" is is actually a very apt phrase, and it just seems like this is the this is the one of the major conflicts we're facing in 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 the the, the months and years ahead. So I'm I'm just and because they're just going to keep going after. Your ability to get your message out, and they're also going to go. You know, they may go after you legally at some point, Not you specifically, but you know, this alternative media. Well,
0: uh, uh, they already have. I faced two frivolous lawsuits in. The past right, I
3: remember. Years. I remember <laughs> one that you had talked about, right? And then they're also going after your um, sources of income. I mean, that's what that's what the plan is.
0: Yeah, uh, pay, and PayPal it's, has you know, blocked a bunch of independent journalists in the past few months.
3: So my question is, is there, like, maybe you personally, but also is there some kind of a, a – is there any kind of a strategy? Like, I, you know, I see people, okay, they go on Substack or, and they put their stuff on Rumble and there's, a, you know, there's other platforms, which is good. But do you think there will ever be some kind of a coming together of of, uh, alternative media, like, like platforms that really have been built to protect our protect you and your colleagues, whether you agree with them or not, but just people who who are not uh, servants of the, uh, of the mainstream media, the deep state, whatever the hell it is. Uh, Like what, what's, what, 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 what's the, what's, is there a plan for the future? I mean, is something like that going to come together. Do you have, you know, do you have some thoughts on that yourself?
0: Yeah. I mean, I thought about this a lot. Unfortunately, it's a really difficult problem because, you know, um, just because of the background noise, I'm just going to mute you because um, yeah, yeah. it's, it's a very difficult problem. I mean, I think one of the only solutions is building up these alternative platforms. But the problem is that there are alternatives to big, you know, big social media platforms and there are alternatives to YouTube, but they're just not very popular. So I have... All of my videos backed up on Rockfin, Rumble, and Odyssey. But the amount of people who use Odyssey, Rumble, and Rockfin is just tiny. It's a tiny little sliver of a percent of the amount of users of YouTube. YouTube is in fact, I think it's the second most popular website on earth and it's used everywhere. I mean, that's what's incredible about this. So when when the US government and the European Union told YouTube to ban RT, at first the European Union told Google, which owns YouTube, to ban RT and it did it and banned all Russian media. And then the US told Google to do it and it banned RT in the entire world. So I'm in Nicaragua and RT was a very popular news outlet in Latin America. It was the most RT en Espanol was the most popular news outlet in all of Latin America. And now it's barely watched at all. Because most people watched it on YouTube, and it was erased from YouTube. And yeah, I mean, people watch it on cable too, but cable use is declining everywhere, and especially among young people. Most people just watch stuff on their phone, right? On YouTube. So that that was an incredible... Symbol of how tightly controlled people's access to information and access to the media is. And not just by these large corporations, but by the US government. Because when the EU banned it, okay, it affected the EU. When the US government banned it, it affected the entire world. And, you know, we've seen an attempt to try to build up Rumble and Odyssey, but the amount of people who use those platforms is very tiny. And furthermore, the people who use those platforms tend to already agree with you, right? One of the f- advantages of YouTube is that although the algorithm is, is insanely biased against you, you can maybe sometimes get viewers who have never heard of you and who might be you know, sympathetic and might wanna learn, learn some new facts and a new perspective that they don't get in mainstream media. Because there's so many people on YouTube, billions of users literally it it has a much bigger platform so there's not really any other way around that other than that these big tech corporations have to be broken up and you know there actually has been discussion in u.s the u.s house there's a bill that's been introduced to take a step toward breaking up big tech operations there's issues with the bill of course but it does show that there are people who are kind of moving toward that and i don't expect the u.s congress to ever be like a uh, be the uh, solution for this but i think one of the solutions is not only just diversifying use of platforms but literally breaking up these big tech corporations they're just too big they've gobbled up the internet i mean i remember the internet before social media and you know there were problems with it but it was certainly a more democratic space how many blogs were there how many popular websites were there now web traffic is all concentrated in in a small handful of these big corporations and you know what it reminds me of is the war on torrent websites and obviously I mean being an independent journalist is not being is not the same thing as being a torrent host <laughs> because uh you know. Hosting a torrent website is kind of a legal gray area where being an independent journalist shouldn't be a legal gray area, although the U.S. government is making that more and more. But, you know, it's funny that there are these websites like the Pirate Bay that have been around for many years and are just constantly dropped by their ISP, constantly dropped by their host. They're they're forced to constantly get new domain names, and they continue to find new... They continue to survive and find new ways to host their website. And I think that increasingly that's what's happening to alternative media. Although again, hosting torrents is more of a legal gray area than being an independent journalist. But that's basically what the US government is doing. And let's be real, the US government controls the internet for a lot of people. And that's why, you know, a lot of people criticize China and the so-called Great Firewall. But that's exactly why China did that. Because China now has its own like independent internet infrastructure controlled by, you know, other, other institutions. You know, Weibo and WeChat and all of these websites and Alipay and Alibaba and there's tons of others that I don't know anything about. But it's because all of these big tech corporations in in Silicon Valley are accountable to Washington. So, I mean. Honestly, I think it's, it's once again, it's a political and economic problem because it's become really easy to censor journalists and media outlets because these big corporations dominate such a huge part of the internet. And I really think that if they could be broken up, I mean, if Facebook could just be dissolved, that would be great. (laughs) And if these, if at the least these companies can be broken up and there can be other platforms that can actually compete without being destroyed by Facebook. Like, like look what Facebook did to Instagram. It bought Instagram. And then look what Instagram did to, what was that, um, Snapchat. Instagram just stole Snapchat's technology with its stories, Instagram stories. And then what happened with WhatsApp? Facebook bought WhatsApp. And then what happened with YouTube? Google bought YouTube. So it's just that it's the concentration of all of these social media platforms in the hands of these big companies. And that's why like, look, I have my videos backed up on Rockfin and Rumble and Odyssey, but unless these institutions are like not for profit and are run by like ideologically motivated people, if they're for profit companies, if they get big enough, they'll just be bought by Facebook or Google as well. So. Again, I think it, it fundamentally it's a problem of political economy. It goes back to ownership, and these companies are all run. They're all, they're also all uh, basically controlled by the U.S. government. So, I wish I had a, a solution, but until then, I think we just have to keep backing, backing our, our work up on as many platforms as possible. So, um, I, I think I think North uh, North Squatch just, just joined again. I think if you meant to, I'll take that, and then I'm gonna probably wrap up. Go ahead.
2: Hey, sorry. Um, yeah, sorry, man. If you've answered this question a million times, I'm just kind of, I think I'm late to the party uh, where I've listened to like people like Aaron Mate and, uh, and like Jimmy Dore and stuff. They, they like to, uh, their, their viewpoint is that for lack of a better explanation that like NATO is at fault for the war in Ukraine. Which doesn't make any sense to me uh, from just the standpoint of being like, um, wouldn't, wouldn't Ukraine have the right to join NATO? Like, I don't understand how anybody makes that. argument. I and maybe this isn't your standpoint either. But um, if there is an argument that, like, uh, Russia had to attack Ukraine, I, I don't get it. Um, maybe you can explain that to me. Uh, if, if you're even aware of what that argument is.
0: No, I, I strongly agree with the argument that NATO... I'm just meeting you because of the background noise, that NATO caused the, the war in Ukraine. First of all, the war in Ukraine didn't begin when Russia invaded on February 24th of this year. The war in Ukraine began in 2014. And what happened in 2014? The U.S. government organized a violent coup in Ukraine that overthrew the democratically elected president, Viktor Yanukovych, and installed an, a puppet regime, and there's a leaked phone call, a recording, of top U.S. State Department official Victoria Nuland discussing with the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Jeffrey Pyatt, and she says that Yats is our guy, referring to Art Sinya Yatsenyuk, who became prime minister of Ukraine a few weeks later, who is this neoliberal Chicago boy, right-wing politician. So... Then what happened? The government passed a bunch of it forced through a bunch of legislation, including repressing the rights of the Russian speaking minority in the eastern part of Ukraine, who represent around one fifth of the population. And they rebelled and rose up against the government. And then the the coup regime responded by arming a bunch of gangs, including neo Nazi gangs. And this, is, this has been acknowledged and admitted in mainstream media back in 2014. I wrote an article about how the Atlantic Council was praising the Azov Battalion back in 2014 when it was backed by the Ukrainian government and a bunch of billionaire oligarchs to fight against Russian indip- or Russian speaking. They are Ukrainians, but they are ethnic Russians and Russian speakers in the eastern part of the country who, were, who rose up and wanted independence or at least autonomy and they were brutally attacked and repressed. And the people who did that in Mariupol in 2014 were largely the Azov Battalion, these neo-Nazi thugs who were such good fighters that the Ukrainian National Guard incorporated them uh, directly into its structures. And then the war continued in between 2014 and 2022, excuse me, 2014 and the end of 2021, According to the United Nations, more than 14,000 Ukrainians died and the majority of civilian casualties were in eastern Ukraine in the Donbass. That is to say, they were killed by the Ukrainian government and its western backers. So, yeah, I mean, it is true that the Russian speaking Ukrainians in the east, they were getting support from Russia, but the, the Ukrainian coup regime that was installed by the US through a classic CIA textbook style coup in 2014, the Ukrainian military and Ukrainian government were also getting billions of dollars from the U.S. government and other Western governments. This was all before Russia invaded. And then furthermore, I mean, there's a few other major factors. One, that back in 1990, the former Soviet Union was repeatedly reassured by the U.S. government by the British government, by France, and by West Germany, that with the reunification of Germany, that NATO would not span, expand one inch east. We have a lot of we have a lot of documentary evidence from Western government documents proving that this promise was repeatedly made to the former Soviet Union, and then it was also made to Boris Yeltsin, that former the first president after the overthrow of the Soviet Union of the of the Russian Federation. And they not only broke that promise, they broke it 14 times, expanding 14, adding 14 new countries all east of Germany, including Poland, including two former members of the Soviet Union, the Baltic states, including Estonia, that are directly on Russia's border. And furthermore, NATO was constantly doing military exercises with these countries right on Russia's border, including in Estonia as recently as November of 2021. And then Russia asked in writing, it asked for a series of security guarantees from the US, the EU and NATO. And this was, of course, after Donald Trump, the Trump administration tore up the INF Treaty, the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. the. Intermediate-range nuclear forces treaty allows the U.S. government to install intermediate-range ballistic missiles with nuclear weapons right on Russia's borders, including in Ukraine. And there were discussions of... Zelensky himself talked about potentially putting Western nuclear weapons in Ukraine, which would have a flight time of five minutes to major Russian cities. And so then Russia... Asked for written security guarantees in late 2021 in the winter. And the US and NATO and the EU said, screw you. We're not going to give you anything. Not a single guarantee. And then there, and then Zelensky gave public speeches saying that, that Ukraine by force is going to take back Crimea after the 2014 coup in Ukraine backed by the US. Russia, it did militarily intervene. And then there was a democratic referendum held in Crimea. And the vast majority of people in Crimea voted to join the Russian Federation. Crimea was an area that was largely Russian speaking. And it was given to Ukraine back when Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union. And it was just a formality. And even Henry Kissinger, the arch war criminal, even he admitted that what Russia did in in Crimea was not like this crazy policy and that it was completely understandable. And again, there was a democratic referendum. So this isn't to say that, you know, Russia is some perfect angelic country, but at every single stage, going back to 1990, the U.S. and the, and the Europeans and NATO had broke all of their promises, surrounded Russia by, with military bases, and done constant military exercises with these countries on Russia's borders, and made sure their militaries are interoperable so they could potentially wage a war on Russia someday. They talked about putting nuclear weapons in Ukraine and tore up the Intermediate-Range Nuclear Forces Treaty that would allow them to put nuclear missiles in Ukraine. And then finally, Russia said, we're not going to take this anymore. And it didn't. It it, yeah, invaded and violated international law. But the U.S. and NATO and the EU have also been violating international law constantly. And I should say another point. The current CIA director, William Burns, he used to be U.S. ambassador to Russia, the Russian Federation, not the Soviet Union. And he wrote an article, excuse me, he wrote a, a cable, a U.S. embassy cable in 2008 when he was U.S. ambassador to Russia. And we have this, it was a classified cable. We have it because it was published by WikiLeaks. And in this 2008 embassy cable, This is the the year when, at the NATO summit in Bucharest, Romania, the U.S. government under George Bush declared that Ukraine and Georgia, both former Soviet republics, would, would join NATO. And Russia said, this is a red line. We're not going to tolerate this. And the U.S. ambassador, William Burns, wrote in this 2008 cable, he said that if Ukraine and also Georgia join NATO, it would cross Russia's red line, and it could force Russia to intervene, and it could start a civil war in Ukraine. That was the US ambassador to Russia writing and warning the Bush administration back in 2008, and everything he warned came true. There was a civil war which started in 2014 in Ukraine, and it forced Russia to intervene. So. I mean, again, this isn't to say that Russia's perfect, but imagine what the U.S. would do if Mexico had a coup, that if China organized a coup, a violent coup in Mexico, led by far-right extremists, and then those far-right extremists were incorporated into the Mexican National Guard and security services, and then Mexico became part of a military alliance... With China and stored Chinese troops and Chinese weapons and military bases and discussed having Chinese nuclear weapons on the Mexico-U.S. border. I mean, even that that parallel, which is the closest we can come to, doesn't even consider the past very recent history of the U.S. government overthrowing the government in Moscow in 1991 and imposing a puppet leader, Yeltsin, and then imposing massive shock, neoliberal shock therapy that led to millions of excess deaths and the standard of living in Russia declining by several years, and then privatizing the state, the all state-owned companies and selling them off for pennies in the dollar to a bunch of wealthy oligarchs. I mean, even that history, you know, you have to consider all that. So this is, again, this is not me saying that, you know, Vladimir Putin is some great, perfect leader. Obviously, there's a lot of things that I don't like about Putin, especially his domestic policies and economic policies. But in terms of Russia's military intervention in Ukraine, I mean, it's it's like people have said it's like the U.S. was poking the bear and the bear bit back. It's not even just that. It's like the U.S. was trying to behead the bear with like barbed wire and then the bear fought back. I mean, it's just... No country would tolerate the amount of insane bullying that that not only Russia, but also China and Iran and these other countries are are forced or constantly being subjected to. And at some point, the U.S. has to take responsibility for pushing Ukraine into a war that it couldn't win. The U.S. knew Ukraine could never win this for pushing Ukraine into this war and then fueling this war with billions and billions of dollars, tens of billions of dollars of weapons and fighting to the last Ukrainian. And the goal is very clear. Joe Biden said it in a speech in Poland. The goal is overthrowing Russia's government. And defense secretary slash Raytheon lobbyist Lloyd Austin also said that the goal is to weaken Russia. And they're they're using Ukrainians and bleeding Ukrainians to weaken Russia. And they haven't just been doing this Since February. They've been doing this since 2014, and they've been doing it even since before that. Back in 2004, there was a classic textbook color revolution in Ukraine that overthrew once again Viktor Yanukovych. That was the first time he was overthrown before the second coup in 2014 and the so called Orange Revolution. And The Guardian published an article back in 2004. And in the article, The Guardian boasts of how the U.S. government spent millions of dollars meddling in Ukraine's election in 2004, 2003 and 2003, leading to 2004, and how, thanks to these millions of dollars spent by U.S. government CIA cutouts like the National Endowment for Democracy and the U.S. Agency for International Development, they succeeded in overthrowing Yanukovych. So, at some point, actions have consequences, and the U.S. government never takes any consequences for its actions. So, but that said, I do, it's over, it's been over an hour, I do have to run. I have a, um, I go do another interview. But I wanna thank everyone who joined. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to take Andrew's question, but I'm gonna do that. Um, I swear if you join, I will absolutely take it next time. I'm sorry, I just have a hard stop. But um, I wanna thank everyone who joined in this. And as always, if you wanna listen to an earlier part of it, you can go check out the show on iTunes and Spotify and other platforms. There are links to that on my um, on the on the show here on Colin. There's an RSS feed. So I want to thank everyone. Good questions, good discussion, and I'll see you next time. I I, I, do, I do two of these a week, so I'm so I apologize to Andrew. I'm sorry I didn't keep track of time well enough, but I will take your question if you want to if you can join for the other call, and today is Wednesday, so I'm gonna do the other one on Friday. So Friday, June 17th, and around the same time, I'll be doing another one of these. So I'll see you all next time, thanks.